Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide, also known as Haig-Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the Pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a measure of the man through his Measure of the Year. Alan Haig-Brown is the third-born and only son of Anne and Roderick Haig-Brown. In the 1950s, he learned to swim and canoe among the salmon on the Campbell River. In the 60s, he worked on purse-sainers with the Asu family of Cape Mudge. In the 70s, he and his then-wife Vicky Asu went up another river, the mighty Fraser, to teach and learn with the Chilcotin and Shuswap indigenous nations. In the mid-80s, back on the coast, he started a seven-year career creating and editing five regional West Coast trade magazines. Since the early 90s, he's worked as a freelance writer and photographer in countries around the world. Along the way, he's published five books on a variety of subjects. He specializes in commercial marine and commercial fishing writing and photography. Alan has three children, including James, who lives in Esquette near Williams Lake, and daughters Helen, a filmmaker, living in Haida Gwaii, and Linda, the accountant for the Chilcotin National Government. Alan is currently married to Ananya Sarankamon, and in non-COVID times is based half-time in Bangkok, but he joins me from his home by the Fraser in New Westminster, British Columbia. Alan, welcome to Taking Measure. Good day, Dan. Good to be here. I understand you've got a reading for us, and this would be from Measure of the Year, the month of November. Yes, it's a little untypical because normally we think of Roger Hague Brown as the fly fisherman, but he did grow up in Dorset in England and a lot of hunting on the uh, his grandfather's estate there. But he wasn't a great hunter. He was a great woodsman and loved being in the woods. So here's, uh, here's what he had to say about himself and, and hunting and killing animals. I had stopped at one stage that I thought... I had resolved the matter for myself. I found a sensible dividing line I could cling to. When I moved down from the north and admitted the existence of butcher shops, it was no longer a part of living to kill deer for food. I admitted this with a sense of relief and admitted at the same time that I never wanted to kill another bear, another goat, another cougar, large game of any kind, the rifle, the calm shot, a weight of death 
greater than my own weight, were not for me. But the shotgun, the swift wing shot, the intricate work of good dogs, the hard walking over the long hills, and among the rustling leaves and frost-browned grasses of the quiet places in old logging works, were something else again. I did not want to shoot limits or kill easily. I wanted only to get out, to watch my dogs work closely, keenly, wisely, in the skills they were bred to. I wanted to find often enough, and kill often enough for this, and to hold sometimes in my hand the lovely pattern of feathers and colors that is a freshly killed ruffed grouse. This I did, and was satisfied for a while, calm in my mind, rewarded by all the pleasures a hunter should know, and a great intensity then became the intensity of my hunting was less. Such destruction as I wrought was insignificant, far less than that of the winter to come or the cycle to come. My kills were scattered over a wide area and were grouped in a single covey. I'm sorry, that was never grouped in a single covey. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the idea was that you would kill one grouse from a covey of grouse, but not a whole lot. And so really what I saw him with his hunting was that he went out and walked in the woods, enjoyed the woods, and because he was hunting, he paid closer attention. And that's what he taught me about fly fishing also. It didn't matter about catching the fish, imagining the fish in the water, imagining the grouse in the forest, the whole thing, and then eventually taking what you wanted home. In fact, my mother had a very strict rule that if you kill it, you clean it. There were some men who could take a bird home and the wife would clean it. So when we hunted Wilson's snipe, for example, they're small birds, we gave them all to one man whose wife was prepared to make a pie out of them, and we brought none home to our house. Alan, why of all the subjects and all the chapters and subchapters in Measure of the Year, was this the one that spoke to you? <laughs> because it sparked something that's just happened recently. As the only son, there was a great equality among the children in our family. But my mother also told me, there would never be any primogenitor in our family. And our father left England because of the whole class and gender predictions and basis of life on that. And they wanted to do it in a new way. And my American mother, of course, was very strongly for that and would later be called a feminist, not at the time I was growing up. So she told me there would be no primogenitor. But I thought at the time, well, yes, that's right. However, I will inherit my father's shotgun. He had a beautiful, custom-built English double. And I knew my sisters never went hunting, and I did. Therefore, I would get the gun. And that always kind of tickled me. And my father actually gave me the gun before he died. And, uh, and I shot with it a bit, but like him, I didn't like killing. It was a mallard duck that I killed, and I picked it up, and I thought, no, that's the last one I'm going to kill. And that was many years ago. But further to the primogeniture... i got to stop you right there, because for me, that was a completely new word. I know it's an old word. I know now it's based in Latin. 
primogenitor essentially means the inheritance going to the firstborn or, uh, in many instances, the firstborn son. Yes, that's right. And it was a new word to me when my mother told me, and I don't, <laughs> I don't think I've heard it anywhere else, but she was very clear about it, and I understood the meaning. So I now have four grandchildren, two girls, and two boys. My very precocious Tua Denis, the granddaughter, is six years old, and last summer, when they were down from Haida Gwaii to Williams Lake, and I drove up to Williams Lake, and we all met at Chimney Lake, etc., and had a lovely time, I took the shotgun up, and I presented the shotgun to my six-year-old granddaughter. I broke the horrible thoughts that I had had in insisting on and getting the shotgun. And so in the next generation, it went to the girls in the family. That's all. And you mentioned that the hunting was the guy thing. Your your mom and your sisters were not out there stalking game in the bush as well. No, my mother had a beautiful little single-shot twenty-two that she eventually went to my sister Celia, and I don't think I ever saw her shoot it. I think that maybe my father had ideals of that when he was first married, but by the time I came along, no, she had no interest. And the daughters, I don't think, ever went hunting that I remember. It was kind of a guy thing, although there was a, a great weekend in the fall, the American Thanksgiving, I think it was, when my godfather, who we called Uncle Edward, and his friend, Glenn Trimble, came up to Campbell River, and we hunted three of them, and me tagging along with the dogs. And they brought Labradors, and they, they brought a Labrador pup to me when I was four or five years old. And we spent a weekend hunting and beautiful evenings in that study, me cleaning the guns and them smoking cigars and drinking whiskey and talking and telling stories. And they were just total magical times. And the smell of, of gun oil and cigar smoke always gets me really going on those evenings. Meanwhile, my mother was in the kitchen preparing a beautiful dinner, which is problematic in today's word, but she did it in an amazing fashion. And part of the reason that I chose that section was as a way to talk about my mother and the power and the influence she was in our family. We're going to go there in just a second, but there was one other passage, and you mentioned the shotgun, a beautiful instrument that you do not wish to use for killing makes it nonetheless beautiful. And I read in this chapter a description of carrying a gun unlike any I had ever heard before. And your father writes, I like the gun. It is a familiar thing, full of associations. I'm a different man when I'm carrying it, more alert, more careful, more purposeful than without it. Carrying a gun has taught me a thousand things about animals and country and wind and weather that I should not otherwise have bothered to learn, has taken me to a thousand places I should not otherwise have seen. I have never heard anything remotely close to that in terms of describing a gun. Mm. It's very much a ritual instrument, and the hunting was ritual hunting. It was not hunting for food. And later in life, I have been with people who hunted for food. My seine boat captain used to shoot a deer off a bluff, and it would tumble down the bluff and land in the salt chuck. 
and I would take the skiff and row over and pick it up and bring it back to the seine boat. And at first I thought, whoa, this is not what I was taught. And then I realized we were also fishing for salmon with a big net. This was not about walking a long way for sport. This was getting food. I now know my daughters and my grandchildren live in a culture where that is is common and, and the importance of hunting for food is paramount, both as a ritual and an affirmation of the land. But I can see why my father would stop hunting because it, it really wasn't necessary. And similarly, when he was fishing, he once came to visit me in the Chilcotin and the Chilcotin River was in Freshet. And we went down to the river, and it was very muddy and, and opaque. And he said, we won't catch any fish here today. But we then proceeded to fish for several hours and have a delightful time working our way down through that pool. I can still feel the gravel. I can still feel the current on my legs. I can still see where he pointed across the way. There was a little funnel that came down that was gathering up the feed, that if there was a fish, that's where they would be. And the talk was gorgeous. But no, we didn't catch any fish. In other words, the fishing was greater than the catching of the fish. Yes. To people who have never been fly fishing, I sometimes compare it to uh, karate or some of the martial arts. Because the first thing that they teach people in martial arts, this is not about going out and beating somebody up. This is about knowing your body, knowing your space and movement. And that's very much. My father as a, quotes, sportsman. But really, it was a way of being in tune. Would he have made a transition then, essentially? I think of when he and your mother first arrived here on the banks of the Campbell, it was a very much a subsistence existence. The fish certainly were a big part of the diet. And, and I would think maybe some of the other game was as well. Is it he mentions almost the discovery of butcher shops and so forth. Is Was that an evolution along the way? Like in the initial days, he made sense to go out and hunt and put meat on the table. Well, his introduction to Canada was on the Nimkish River with the Lansdowne family, and there were no butcher shops. That is how you got meat, period. They had a cow. He also hunted cougars for bounty, for money. So he had done the hunting. Now, I know that he had a deer rifle, which again was an excellent rifle. I don't remember what it looked like. About the time he wrote this book, when I was five or six years old, he gave that or sold it to somebody that really coveted it. He said there was a guy who really wanted it. And I used to say, oh my God, how could you do that? Why didn't you keep it for me, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it's one of my childhood things. So I know that the deer rifle went out of the tackle closet where guns were kept at about the time, I think right after World War II. And so also we had sheep on the place and there were a few sheep butchered every year and meat came from mutton as well as butcher shop. He said he was making enough money that he didn't have to shoot deer and he could leave the deer for families that needed them more than he did. Over time, uh, he must have taken an awful lot of fish. Is there a difference, a distinction between... You mentioned the fishing without necessarily the fish as the end goal at times, but surely he put a lot of fish on the table, I would think, as you were growing up as well. Was there a distinction between fishing as opposed to hunting when it came to the killing? 
I think there was a distinction, but I think it's only very slight. He often, in later years, particularly I remember, practiced catch and release, which is a very debatable subject now in terms of survival, etc. Certainly something you don't want to do with a cougar. No, you don't do it with a cougar. <laughs> but he was, he was horrified at the killing of the cougars. He said it was awful. They were stuck up in a tree and it wasn't very far and the dogs barking around them and, and you shot them. He primarily did it, I think, one winter to research, to write a book called Caillou or Panther, depending on the issue. And so I only heard stories of it. There certainly was none of it. We did hunt with a very good cougar hunter called Skate Haynes, who sometimes went uh, snipe hunting with us down in Black Creek. You mentioned the study and the smell of gun oil and so forth, which is a different description than I've heard of this room. I'm sitting there now. So far, the discussions have been so much around the writing and the view of the river out the window and the, the book-lined walls and the, the warm, insular feel to the place. You've added a new element for me right there, just the smell of gun oil. With cigar smoke. And cigar smoke. <laughs> I was going to say the smell of whiskey, but no, I couldn't smell the whiskey. <laughs> it was an amazing room, and it, and it hosted a wide range of people over the years and lots of stories. But for me, officially, my bedtime was usually 9 o'clock, and I would be sent off to bed, and I would stop in the study where my father would be writing, and I would ask him some inane question about whatever, and he would take time to pull books off the shelf and reference me on this, that, and the other thing. But also, I was a slow learner. Maybe I still am a slow learner. So I didn't learn to read very early. And he read, I'm amazed. Like, I'm sure he read me Eastward Ho, a number of Mark Twain, Robert Louis Stevenson, Kim, Stocky and Company, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, The Yearling. I read The Yearling to my own children. It took me damn near a year to read it to them. I don't know how he found that much time for me to read all of those books. He read very well, and it was a great joy. He sat exactly where you're sitting at his desk and put his feet up on the thing and, and read to me, and I sat across the way, and often my sisters came in and joined. And I now think that he was probably doing a little mediation because I think it was grade four before I really started to read novels. Well, that just adds to the feel of this uh, of this place, the study. It's been said, of course, that it was the shared love of the books and, and literacy that brought your parents together in the first place. And certainly, everything I have seen and heard so far really lends to the concept of I think your sister Valerie said it was in our DNA, it's that literary existence you were reading or being read to, and it seems you've all become writers, and even into the next generation, there is this respect and almost worship of the written word, an appreciation that you picked up, I guess, maybe right here in this room. Absolutely. Absolutely. There and and uh, at the dinner table, too. Um the conversation that my parents had, the debates, political debates, quite heated at times. They did have the same politics, but they didn't always support the same particular issue. So when one prime minister wanted to bring the Beaumark missiles to Canada, and my mother said there should never be a nuclear arms on the Canadian soil, they had arguments. And I think that's when my mother took out Canadian citizenship so that she could cancel my father's vote. 
<laughs> There's a sign of an activist right there. Yeah, she is. She certainly was. It, absolutely amazing, the things she taught. And yes, the books were respected. It was often the call in the house, supper's ready, get your book. And you would bring your book to the dinner table. And if it was a dinner where people were reading books, it would be said, if you don't eat your supper, you won't be able to read your book. So as long as you could eat and read at the same time, that was fine. If you got preoccupied with the book and neglected your supper, then no, you had to, to learn to do both at the same time. And I, I still read an iPad when I'm eating a meal. It's a natural thing to do. It was so interesting to read through Measure of the Year. There are a number of places where your father sort of spells out the team that was he and your mother and how, as you're saying, they didn't see everything the same way. And in fact, that was one of their great strengths was that they had differing opinions, different approaches. And that last example you give is a good one. He from the old country, your mother from the new, obviously approached things from different backgrounds. Let's talk about your mother and that let's say that American spirit that maybe bristled a little bit at some of the old guard British. Well, I think to do that, then I want to read this little section that my father wrote in July of Major of the Year for my mother. It's actually a, a much longer section than this, but I've just chosen a small part of it here. He wrote, 15 years ago, Anne was a city girl only a little while out of university and developing nicely in her job in one of the best bookstores on the Pacific coast. She was a convinced intellectual, better read than most professors of English, altogether confidently and secure of the great world. She was, her sister Mary said, far too persnickety about things like underwear and modern poets and fine music ever to make a good country girl. And I had, in my own mind, a feeling that although we were starting out to live in the country, it would only be a matter of time before we turned to the city. But I have never once heard Anne regret the city or suggest going back to it for anything longer than a quick visit. She says this is because she has the heart of a peasant. Perhaps she has. She has also the mind of a 17th century poet, the manners of a charming American, the emotions of Tolstoy's Natasha, and the strength of St. Teresa. And while none of these qualifications excludes the peasant heart, they do at times obscure it. The peasant heart is European, and not less noble for that, the American echo of it strong and clear as the original, and far more complex, is the pioneer heart. And this, I think, more truly than the other, is Anne's heart. A pretty big leap of faith for a Seattle city girl to move up to the banks of the Campbell a subsistence farm a long, well, a fair ways from home to start making a life here. And that writing suggests, of course, that she had that pioneer heart in her already, and that helped to make above tide what it is. 
I think it works. It's one way of saying it. It's a bit dated, actually. I don't think we use the word pioneer much anymore. But what happened was that in the 1930s, when they came to Campbell River and bought the house and started going, then my father went off to World War II. He had lost his own father in World War I. He wasn't a gung-ho patriot, but I think he felt the responsibility to his father, whatever. But he went off in 1941. And my mother, apparently, I was only born in 41, my apparently said to him, well, I'll go back to Seattle. And he said, oh, what? And leave everything we've built here. So she stayed. But then a wonderful woman named Nellie White, who I knew very well, and other women in the neighborhood helped her learn how to milk the cow and care for the cow and manage the farm. And that's when she really became the farmer and the, and the vegetable gardener and took over all of those things and got us through the war on rationing. So I think that was a big step. And at the time this book was written in 49, he really was just coming to realize who this woman was, how dynamic she was. But, you know, the pioneer thing, my father used to like to keep the fields clear because he talked about the work that people had done to clear them. But my mother had them all planted in native trees so that they could go back to their native state. So they were not the same. And that, many would suggest, myself among them, is a good thing. I look at the modern era and the concept of the dating sites where they essentially try and line you up with somebody who has all the same interests you do. And I think, well, maybe that works on some level, but what a what a loss that represents to the ability to encounter and live and grow with somebody who doesn't share all of your sensibilities and, in fact, has many others that are, are greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah. They set a very high bar for a, a successful marriage and the love in a marriage. I know that uh, when in, in my marriages, sometimes when I've sat down at the table and there was no salt and pepper, I used to try kind of <clears throat> going <clears throat> clearing my throat a little bit and waiting for somebody to jump up and get the salt and pepper, which my mother would do. I've never met that woman. I think it was a different era. Uh, <laughs> and I would ask her, you know, why did you do that? And she said, because I loved him so much. Their love was stellar. It was beautiful. Now, you recalled earlier the primogenitor and essentially the message that, okay, you're not going to inherit all of this, and that's just not the way things work here at Above Tide. That speaks quite a lot about your mother's character and what she brought to Above Tide and to the relationship. You wanted to talk about her, not only here at Above Tide, but her impact on Campbell River, obviously, was very substantial. And maybe when we're talking about Haig Brown House, gets maybe not as much attention as it deserves. I know. And I remember once, oh, many years after my father had died, and, and I forget, around the time of my mother's death, I met a guy, a lawyer in Vancouver, who had been a Crown prosecutor on the island in the 90s, 80s. And he said that when he had a particularly difficult case involving rape or something that a, a woman had to testify he would go to my mother, and my mother would come to the court and support that woman. She never told me about that. I didn't know about it. 
She did once when I was visiting in Campbell River, asked me to come with her because they had named a home for battered women after her with her maiden name, Anne Elmore. And she was very proud of that work. And I run into women all over the place all the time. She was my librarian. She always had time for me. She always would listen to my stories. I would go to Mass and she would touch me when I was a child and make me feel special. She had a a very real presence in the town, in the community, way beyond her marriage and Hague Brown House. I think I probably only come to realize that more recently. I always idolized my father. He was easy to idolize. And my mother did all the hard work of parenting, the 50 stuff we hear of, right? <laughs> the number of times in a day that something she told me will jump out at me, or when I'm reading and I think of something she said about that, and I think, what would she think about it now? Remarkable. And at the same time, made it possible for him to do what he did, help to be the gatekeeper uh, and, and help to shield him from those who would distract him when he should be writing. She would try. I think people would write him letters saying, I'm writing a book about, or I'm wondering about, or I want to tie a fly this way. And he would answer these letters, long, laborious letters. And I think she thought there was a bit too much of that sometimes. You know, it was hard to make a living as a writer in the Canada. It's hard today. Um, and he was doing it in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Crazy. But yes, and she then typed all his manuscripts. And that's... That's what I remember. After I went to bed, you'd hear that typewriter going downstairs. Click, 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 click. And there's still a pink typewriter in the basement in the house that was her final typewriter. So, You touched on this earlier. What was it like being not so much the firstborn son, but the only boy with three sisters at above tide? How was that for growing up? I'd like to think that it, it made me a little more sensitive to women because I had some pretty powerful women around me pushing back if I wasn't. I don't think I thought a lot about it other than maybe the shotgun. <laughs> Valerie and Mary shared a room upstairs. I had a room to myself and there was a guest room upstairs. Celia, younger than all of us, six years younger than me even, had a, a bedroom downstairs. It's really how it was. In fairness, I have to say my sisters learned to cook. They learned to iron. I didn't know how to iron a shirt until my first divorce. (laughs) (laughs) There's a line that could be explored, I'm sure. (laughs) When we were talking about your background, you mentioned that, in fact, it was in your your introduction here, how you, you essentially followed the river down to the salt water, and that took you into the the world of commercial fishing. Yes. Well, my first wife's father was a seine boat captain, and he didn't want his daughter to starve, so he gave me a job on a boat. And that was 1960. Then that winter, he was skipper of a seine boat starting in December, what we called reduction herring in those days, before they learned about the row. It was very hard. We went and fished January and February in Hecate Straits, and uh, people drowned. And it was really important for me. It grew me up. I went from a very immature high school dropout to a uh, a person who knows something about how to work. And so when I eventually went back to school, I understood it's a job and whether you're pulling corks in the skiff or studying for a math exam, it's the same set of skills. You practice and do it over and figure out the rough spots and get around them. 
So the, what I learned fishing, not only did it pay me through university, it taught me how to work, how to study. But at the same time, and just now talking to Hutch Hunt's daughter and Hutch himself on the phone about the beauty of watching my father-in-law set a net 220 fathoms long in the tides of Johnson Straits and seeing how he read the water. And he would say to me, what do you think, Alan, is the tide straightened out now? In the same way that my father would say, what do you think about this current in the river? Do you think that's where the fish would be lying? And so the art of fishing, whether it's commercial or recreational or sports or environmental fishing, is all about being in tune with nature and reading nature and paying attention, paying close attention. And my father loved to hear me talk about fishing when I came back. And he had done a little bit of it himself back in the in the old days. And his book, Saltwater Summer, is based on that set of knowledge and experience. And I still go out on the boats and whether I'm on a tugboat or a fishboat or going up the, the rivers of Europe on a freight boat, Currents fascinate me, and I know how to talk to captains anywhere in the world. It's a great universal and leveler and equalizer. Beautiful. And now we're here to talk about Measure of the Year, but you touched on Saltwater Summer, another book of your father's that has, you say, inspired many to go into commercial fishing. Was it, was it that book that maybe drew you that way as well? No, I was 18 and married and I needed a job. <laughs> <laughs> Far more practical. <laughs> There's a metaphor here, of course, that cannot be ignored, and that is the young man traveling down the river out to the ocean, much like maybe the fish we've been talking about so much as well. And I do return to the rivers regularly. Indeed. <laughs> I live on the Fraser River and, and follow my father's advice. In fact, just this week, after two years of trying, I got somebody to fix up a little piece of salmon habitat that had been neglected. And DFO and nobody would listen, but I think with the help of a local NDP MLA, we got some boomsticks put back so that grasses can grow and support the fry in their downbound trip. So this was the, what we lived and breathed and talked about endlessly. Respect for the rivers, the power of the rivers, the little Kingfisher Creek and seeing the coho in it. And I started diving in the river with a mask and snorkel in the 50s, after reading Jacques Cousteau. And I would get the steelhead gear off the bottom and go and sell it to the tourists for 25 cents each and five for a dollar out of a cigar box. And I would beg my father to come because I, I would see the, you know, he'd be down there with the big springs and, and the sandy pool with a whole school of humpies in it. And he didn't come. And then in the 60s, when I was back at school, I didn't have time. He took up skin diving himself and made a beautiful film, Fisherman's Fall, to match the book. And so I didn't get to really do it with him, but we shared a lot of talk about being down there and how diving and swimming with the fish sort of changes the whole fishing thing. He, he wasn't about to go out and, and see a steelhead dart behind a rock and then go running home and get a fishing rod. It changed. He said it changed his perspective on the whole thing. It also gives a much better view of what's actually happening down there that many people, and maybe even the the fishing aficionados up until that time, had not really been able to observe as clearly as you certainly could once you put the mask on. Yeah, it's crazy remarkable. And, and so much of his sports fishing was to get in tune with the river, 
whether it was feeling the current on his legs in his waders or thinking where the fish would be feeding or laying or, or spawning or whatever. And so once you put the mask on, you're, you're in there and, and you can go over and hang, hang in a back eddy or duck down behind a rock and hold there for a little while. It's beautiful. And now so many years later, you can snorkel with the salmon, which is a, an amazing yes. uh, ex- experience <laughs> yeah. for anybody, yeah. I, I, yeah. Have, I have to recommend. Was it ever difficult being the son of such a prominent, you say you, you idolized your father, uh, but you know, the, was he a tough act to follow, being the great fisher or the hunter, the conservationist or the writer? People have expectations about fathers and their sons. Absolutely. It was a big thing. Of course, growing up in Campbell River, to my friends, he wasn't the internationally known author. He was the judge. And I can even remember being stopped by the police one night saying that we know that you're behind a bunch of stuff that's going on and and we'll catch you one day. (laughs) Because (laughs) police were not always his fan because he was very interpretive of the law and very local in its application. So he wouldn't understand the problem of Commercial fishermen. Uh, commercial fishermen would get in trouble on a Saturday night, but he had to get bailed out before Sunday because you couldn't get bail on a Sunday. I think that's how it worked. So they would come up to the study there at, at 11.30 with a policeman and a seine boat captain and trying to pay bail for his guy, and the police would be sort of annoyed by it. And my father would say, yeah, of course. you got to go fishing in the morning, so you need your guy. So he'd grant the guy $10 bail. And why so low? Well, because the guy's from here. He's not going to go anywhere. So the application, very practical levels. Most of the people I fished with had been up in court in front with them. And they would invariably say, well, your dad wasn't too bad. It wasn't the fine that hurt. It was the lecture. I know your father and he would be disappointed in you. That kind of stuff. And I would say, well, I got it more regularly than you did. (laughs) People liked him. But yes, I didn't write anything until after he died. It didn't occur to me. You've got to go out and make your own world. But that was not just the intimidation. Certainly that was a component. But also the model that we had is that's what you did. You went somewhere and built a world the way our parents did. So all four of us knew that we would leave Campbell River. Why would we want to sit in our father's chair? It just wasn't the model that we had. Now, I think you would have been maybe nine or so when Measure of the Year was actually first published. You were mentioning earlier it was it was being written while you were, I don't know, five or six or thereabouts. Do you have memories of that particular time of Measure of the Year coming out? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I read it, I'm I'm reading about my childhood. As you say, I forget how old I was, but I was eight or nine, something like that. I was born in late 41, so, yeah, seven, eight, nine. But it again, remember, whatever your father does is sort of, that's normal. Yes. <laughs> you know, coming home, and there was a new book out, and there would be copies of it on the study table. And, yeah, it was a big thing. But, you know, like a lot of families getting a new car or something, it was it was really nice and uh, um, and very special. I don't think I knew. Uh, no, you don't know when you're a child. It's just it's normal, right? My father knew how to milk a cow. That was normal. It didn't occur to me that he'd grown up. I didn't go to England with him 
I went to England where he grew up for some years after he died, and I was really sorry not to have gone with him. But I saw things that explained what I knew in my father there when I saw the, the places that he'd hunted in and the places he'd fished, the streams, and why he was so excited about the Campbell. Actually, the Coal Creek uh, behind Campbell River, he would go there, and every time we went there, sometimes jump shooting ducks, sometimes just walking, he would take a thermometer out of his pocket and he'd take the temperature of the water. And he explained to me that because it's fed by springs, the temperature is very consistent year-round. And that makes it the same as the chalk streams of Dorset, which are very famous. And when I went and walked beside the Rackle, one of the chalk streams of Dorset, and saw the weeds growing in it, and the weeds looked exactly like the reeds in the Coal Creek, I was dumbfounded. It was like, wow. He was sentimental about England, although we were never to call England home. We've talked about measure of the year being a departure from much of his other writing. It's kind of his, this is a family growing up on the banks of the Campbell, although he calls it the Elkhorn. Yeah. Do you think that it held a special place in his heart as well? He knew it was different. It was, this was not what he was normally known. He was known for writing about fish. His first river was the Nimkish. So going back to Starbuck Valley Winter and Saltwater Summer, the river in there, which I think is called Elkhorn also, or something like it, it's a, a melding of the Nimkish and the Campbell, which are very similar eastern Vancouver Island, short, fast rivers. So he moved from the Nimkish to the Campbell because he was getting married and Campbell was the end of the road and he thought he should be a little more access to things. So the, uh, I think it's that type of river, fast and complex and pools and rapids, a book called Pool and Rapid. They're different. Well, I said Coal Creek mirrored a lot of a chalk stream of Dorset. The Campbell is a much, much different river. It's bigger and faster and wilder. The rapids, right? than what I saw in England. Any idea why he didn't just refer to it as a Campbell? I think he'd gotten a habit with his fiction writing, because with fiction, if you change the name, you can you can move things around a little bit. I don't think he did in Measure of the Year, but I know, and he told me, that in fiction he changed things so that he was freer to move things. So I think, I think it might have just been a, a habit by the time he got to Measure of the Year. When you think back about this property and growing up here, is, is there a place that occurs to you? When we talked to Celia, she was in the barn with her horses. Hmm. Or a horse. Valerie mentioned, of course, the, the river is one of those things that should naturally, I suppose, come to mind. You spent a lot of time at or in the river. Is there a spot outside the study here that really was yours? The study, of course, was special. Over time different places, right, as you as you grew from and, and you could you could go further. I was always fascinated by the other side of the river and going across to the other side. So the canoe came when I was around the time of measure of the year, actually, a little earlier, but after the war. And so he would take us in the river and I loved it, loved it like crazy. When I was about thirteen or fourteen, I talked him into buying a little three horse Evanrude for it. It was a eighteen foot freight canoe. So it had a transom stern on it, and I didn't think I was big enough to pole it the way he did. So 
once I got that three horse on it, I could take it all the way up into the canyon. I learned how to motor it up through the rapids and sneak it around different things. And I did that, oh, as long as I lived there. I used that canoe that way. And I also took the canoe down the river and across to Quadra Island. In 1958, the blowing up of uh, Ripple Rock. Uh, my friends and I went and loaded camping gear and canoe, and we went and made a camp on one end of Steep Island, just outside the five-mile perimeter, so that we could watch the explosion. Typical teenage camp. We were all wet and soaked in the morning and kind of miserable. And even with binoculars, it didn't look like that much. And and there was no tidal wave, unfortunately. <laughs> Something you were looking forward to. Yeah, we were looking forward to the tidal wave. So the river, I guess, would be as I came to it. And my friends and I swam endlessly. Uh, Robin Woodward, who lived up on the Quinsome, and uh, Alan Simmons, who moved in, in grade one, we were constantly up the river, going up the river, hiking up the river, swimming in the river. And we were never allowed to swim alone because we were told that if you don't take somebody with you when you go swimming, there'll be nobody home to come home and tell us if you drown. Kind of a good way of putting it that made you thoughtful. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> now, Measure of the Year published first in 1950, and the most recent edition, I believe, published in 2011, so 10 years ago now. What do you think it is about this book that we're still talking about it, and so many others are, and obviously there's enough interest to keep coming back and printing new editions. The vast majority of books written by people see one or maybe two printings. We're still talking about this more than, well, jeepers, 70 years later? I often give it as a gift to people. When I first met my present wife 20 years ago, I gave her a copy, and she loved it. She's Filipino-born, Japanese-educated. She's lived 45 years in Thailand. Canada was new to her. This represented the very best of what Canada, Western Canada, our coast BC, coastal BC really has to offer. But it's also such a remarkable love story. It's so promising about family and home and building a place. It's a dream, but it's all true. <laughs> it's the, it's the kind of book that I don't know. I, it should have sold like wildfire to those hippies back in the sixties because that's exactly what they were trying to do. He sort of paints himself as the woodsman settling down. Uh, there's that wonderful line about, you know, don't admit that you know how to milk a cow. <laughs> but it's almost part of his self-deprecating humor where he's become a gardener or he's, he's learned to milk the cow when he sort of saw himself as the woodsman. And it's in many ways sort of his growth as well as the family's. Yes, I think that's right. And and he, the woodsman, is also in On the Highest Hill, almost a psychological complex adult novel that has not survived so well. Also, though, you know, when I first went to England and I went to Rackleford, the estate, his grandfather's estate that he spent his summers on, I was amazed to see that as you drove in at the gate, a great big laurel bush. We always had a big laurel bush as you drive into Haig Brown House. There, there were a lot of settler people who constantly referred to home as being the, the country they came from, right? And they would say, no, we're, we're, this is in Canada. We're building this place. We're going to make this a good place to live. It's not a, a colonial dream where you come and make money and go home and show off your wealth, which is a fairly common 
immigrant thing, so that they were home there. And yet, I can see when I go to Rackleford, the parallels. Of course, it's what he grew up with. It's what he, he saw and knew, and that was a model. So while it's not a replica of an English country estate, it's a, it's a Campbell River house. It's informed by the things he learned from Reg Pidcock, the water wheels and the pump house and the, you know, they had a water tower when they were first there and those, those things, the things he learned on the Nimkish River and the things that he learned by wading in the river. They forged it. And of course, my mother had never been to England at that time when I was growing up. You mentioned earlier you felt in some places maybe the the language, the voice was a little bit dated, and yet there's the magic of this uh, measure of the year as a time capsule. It's a time capsule, but it's also a, a voice for today. He was very much ahead of his time. Conservationist, they didn't have a term environmentalist. He wasn't called a tree hugger. And he wasn't afraid of using the resources. He just had to use them responsibly and, and give back. You couldn't rape and pillage, right? So that he's putting all that together. It's in the book. I really wish people would read him more. However, he does use words like mankind and a man's this and a man's that and, and things like that. Those are dating and, and they get some people a little nervous and, and discomfort. I don't think a serious reader would have that trouble at all. I don't see that as as an issue here. And certainly, people I've given the book to, who come from a very different background, are able to identify the very human and intellectual aspects of the book that are, are set in this, I guess, idyllic estate, you know, but there were dead chickens and dead sheep, and I can remember him stuffing the uterus back into a sheep or some damn thing that had given birth. And, you know, it was not all f fun and games. <laughs> Part of, of living on a farm. Yeah, very much so. Alan, I got to tell you, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Uh, there is so much to be discussed about measure of the year and life at Above Tide. I thank you for sharing with us this conversation. And I wonder, is, is there something I've missed that you'd like to touch on? Before we go, <laughs> I'm thinking last word. Somebody phoned me the other day and said, you know, we'd like you to write an introduction to our book about the whatever, some river somewhere, whatever. And I know they want it because they want the name Haig Brown on the book and they don't really care about the first name. And I often do it and I support anybody that's trying to do things. But I said to this guy, well, you know, you might be able to find a passage in Return to the River. Oh, he said, is that a good book? And I said, go and read the book. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I'm saying now. That guy's writing was so amazing. It's got so much for us to understand. It's so beautifully done. The, the sentences are beautiful, but the environmental issues are so important. I really urge people to go and read Roddy K. Brown. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a wonderful conversation. It's fun. Thank you. Good to see the study again. Take care. Thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. You can link to the Haig Brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. We also offer transcripts of our podcast conversations. 
From the study at Above Tide, the Haig Brown House Heritage Site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan.